Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right. Welcome back to the Wealth Well Done podcast, um, where we share tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. This week, we are doing part two with Robert Rissenthaler, the CEO of REM Capital. Um, we, we started last week with Robert as we went into a bit of his history, lessons learned through the dot-com, cra- the dot-com crash bubble, the 08 crash, and uh, COVID. We got into a little bit of, of how he approaches investors and education, um, and then what he's, you know, how, how he approaches investing in general. Um, so we're going to pick up this week right where we left off. But before we do that, disclaimer as always that, um, you know, regardless of if someone has a license or not on this show, all of the advice that's given is meant to be, uh, these are suggestions this, and, you know, these are not, uh, this is not financial advice specific to any one person. So we, Always, you know, request that you go and take this advice, uh, bounce it off your own financial professional team to see if this makes sense for you uh, before you do anything else uh, with that. Please don't, please don't take this and run with it uh, on your own without considering how this applies to you because this is generic advice um, here. And also the same thing. Uh, I, I am in business with with REM Capital. We we have been so grateful to partner with with Robert and REM because they're such a phenomenal team. But I don't want that to be hidden from anyone here as we get into this. All right. So Robert, picking back up where we left off um, before, we were talking about how do you keep your children from being entitled? And so- Right. So The ultimate question. Yeah. So so you have a large (laughs) family and you have a large family, you have a big business. um, And it's not like you're not trying to blast yourself all over social media and you're not some major household name like Grant Cardone, but you are- certainly out there enough that that you know your children's friends can can pick up on this they that that their dad mm-hmm. is is a businessman and a successful one so how do you how do you raise your kids in that environment yeah you know it's interesting too because i think even if you are a even more well-known figure like a grant cardone um i don't know that it's necessarily that much worse or better mm, good point. i think there's a point at which it's pretty bad and it just is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say bad. That that makes it sound like it's there's a you know a, a negative to it. But it's a challenge, I think, if you really don't want your kids to grow up with that entitlement mentality. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate about my dad, uh, when I was growing up, he was a custom home builder in Dallas. We typically had the largest, nicest house in the entire town. And really almost nobody knew about it because it just wasn't something that we talked about, you know. We went home, friends went home, didn't think about it. Yeah. My dad literally never talked about it. And it wasn't that he didn't talk about it because he was trying to be weird about it. It just was not his, it wasn't on his mind. It wasn't his value system. And that value system got translated, to, I think, to a large degree through to us. I think if he would have talked about it, he would have talked, well, you know, I love my house. I want to build a bigger house. I want to have a nice house. And we got the biggest house. Yeah, we would have picked up on that. Absolutely. All day long. Now. Your kids, so you're going to pick up that on that anyway. <laughs> so, Certainly, you know, 
that 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 is the least that you can do, I think, as a parent is to downplay, not not in a weird way, not in a disingenuous way, but just you know, let your heart show through about what your values are. And so one of the things for me with our kids is we don't talk about the money, we don't talk about all the stuff. We we try to downplay that. We try to keep our lives relatively grounded. Yep. In fact, the other day I was driving our our uh, 2009 minivan. It's got 240,000 miles on it. And <laughs> I went to pick up one of our other partners, Adam, at the airport. And he just kind of looked at me like, dude, what are you doing in this car? And you, I said, you oh, have half a billion dollars of assets that you manage right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I said, well, okay. I wouldn't necessarily pick up an investor in this car. So, you know, there is some level of whatever. But I said, you know, I, I really don't care. And it's almost good for me to remind myself where I came from. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't need a lot of money. And money's not what's going to keep me here or or sustain me. Right. Now, I'm thankful for the blessings that I have, and I hope to be a good steward of them. Absolutely. I feel right. like I have a calling to use the talents and gifts that God has given me to benefit as many people as I possibly can, both you know employees, investors, family, whatever it may be. But I think you can do little things like that just to kind of keep yourself in check. I also remember my dad. After I got my first, you know, good job in New York City, uh, 21 years old, 22, whatever it was, you know, making six figures, which was a lot of money. Yep. And, you know, I remember him saying, well, so you're going to get a new car? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, well, just think about what you're going to think as you walk to your car every day. And, you know, people are going to see you go to your car, whatever. Think about how that's going to affect you. Hmm. And I thought, okay, all right. So I went to the Porsche dealership. I looked at the Porsche. I went to the BMW. I looked at the BMW. You know, went to the Mercedes dealership, and I thought, "Gosh, you know, I could, I could buy any of these cars." Yep. Ended up buying a nine thousand dollar Dodge Stratus. <laughs> and you know, nice car. Nothing wrong mm -hmm. with it. But I just made the decision to uh, pay cash for my car. Made the decision to get something that was a little simpler than what I needed, and I didn't have to. That wasn't the point. You know, I didn't have this guilty feeling like, oh my gosh, if I get a Porsche, I'm a terrible person. Right. No, I just made a simple decision that I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to allow my mind to get too far in that direction. I, I think so, that, that says a lot about you. It says a lot about where your identity, your identity is not in material things and not in what people think of you because he wears a fancy suit or he, or he yeah. drives a fancy car and th therefore he, he must be special. Right, right, right. And again, I always like to say this, there is nothing wrong with driving a nice car. Nothing Certainly wrong with having not. a nice house. Nothing wrong, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. So I think the key here is that each of us individually has to assess our own situation, our own heart, our own desire, and make uh, critical decisions based on that. And so, you know, for somebody else, they may not have kids, they may not, you know, they money may not be an issue and they drive a Porsche and it's no big deal. But for me... Uh, you know, somebody who's highly ambitious, wants to be successful, always dreamed of, you know, running a business, et cetera. I knew that was a weakness for me. And I wanted to make sure that if I ever did get into a position where I was running a big business, then my head wasn't turned into a complete mushball. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that makes a lot of sense for you, but there's no doubt that that translates into your children as well. Yes. Right. Well, that, and that was my point is I think as you live that out as a parent, as a spouse, as a person, I think that comes through to your children. 
And usually the decisions that you make for your children are a reflection of who you are as a person. And so I try to stay away from the, you know, don't do this, do that, don't buy this, do this. And I always come back and say, well, look at yourself. What is your priority list? What are you what are you striving for? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to achieve happiness for your children? Okay. Uh, what's that going to look like in 10 years, 20 years? If you're all you care about is their happiness. Happiness right. isn't happiness. We all know that. Yep. If you strive for happiness, you will not be happy. If you strive for character, if you strive for, you know, telling the truth, if you strive for things that take a little bit of work, then you'll have happiness. And so I always try to go back to that. And, you know, I think it's easy to come up with a to-do list. And again, nothing wrong with a to-do list. Certainly there's practical application to everything. But I think if we come back to the heart, usually what's in there comes out at some point and it's reflected in our kids. <laughs> yeah, no. All right. Phenomenal points. Thank you for that. Okay. Switch gears. Macroeconomic yeah, climate. Here we, go. <laughs> we, we have a, uh, we have an interesting, we have an interesting situation on our hands right now. Mm. Yeah, and so what I want to do is get into some of the technical aspects here. As as you see, you know, wage growth is good for multifamily, mm-hmm. but now, um, but as as the Fed tries to tackle inflation, certainly wage growth is sticky. That that is sticky inflation. The lumber prices go up. You know, they certainly didn't go all the way back down, but but lumber prices go up, they can come back down. But right. when wage when wage growth happens, that's something that's more sticky. And so yeah. if the Fed's trying to fight inflation, which obviously we all know what, what has happened to the um, employee market here over over the last couple of years and, and just how how hot that's gotten, as they're trying to actively bring bring up unemployment as a means of fighting inflation as, and as a key measurement uh, for inflation, where, where does that position a multifamily investor? Sure. And there's a few different elements here that I think are important to keep in mind. Because I'm one of those, I guess you could say, oddball people where I actually strongly support wage growth because I believe that the middle, lower class parts of society need to have a living wage. Mm. And it bothers me when people are getting 10 bucks an hour and you have to pay $1,000 a month in rent. It just doesn't work. Right. So... You know, on the flip side, you could argue, well, everybody has a cell phone, everybody has a brand new TV, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you know, sure, there's some truth to that too. But I think we've got to think about a living wage for people. So I support wage growth. I actually think the Fed supports wage growth. Some of the comments that they've made about the fact that wage growth has not kept up, not even close, kept up to the rest of the cost of living, I think is a fair point. Yep. Um, Now, we don't want to cause you know, mass inflation to your point, because that can derail the entire economy. But I think there's some room in wage growth that they would allow. What we're seeing today, I think more than anything else, is a dichotomy between what the Fed is trying to do and what Congress is doing. Mm-hmm. I think that is our biggest headwind right now. Yeah. Congress has initiated trillions of dollars of spending in the face of the Fed trying to fight inflation. Right. So, I know it's not a hot, I know it's not a, a uh, you know politically correct topic. I guess you should say to cut spending, but the fact is that spending is hurting the middle class and the lower class because it's causing inflation in places that we don't want it, which is then causing the Fed to raise interest rates, which is causing housing to go up and people can't afford a house. So I'm maybe a little bit counter 
you know, counter whatever you want to call it, mainstream in that respect. But I really believe if we fix the spending problem that Congress has, I think a lot of these things would go away and we'd be able to allow the wage growth to continue at a reasonable pace and we wouldn't have all this issue. Now, to your question about multifamily, what does this do for us? Well, I think two things. One, if inflation continues, obviously the value of these assets continue to go up. Mm -hmm. So from an appreciation standpoint, we win. Rents continue to go up, which means profits are going to go up. We win. Um, obviously we have to control our expenses. So, you know, that's sort of the wild card is what happens to that. The biggest problem for us, the biggest risk always is when jobs are destroyed and people cannot pay their rent. Right. That's the biggest concern. If that goes away, we're in trouble. Now we have about a two to $3 million shortage of multifamily units and about a 6 million shortage in single family units in the country. So Theoretically, we'd have to see a severe drop in jobs before we get any major effect. So I don't think we're at a point where we're going to see that. But I do think that's always our biggest risk. If people lose their jobs, then we got a problem because we can't collect rent from people that don't have money. Right. That was the same thing with the pandemic. When the government said, hey, all you hospitality workers, you're out of a job tomorrow. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, guys. How does that work? Right, right. <laughs> So then, so that comes into the, and we, we talked a little bit last episode about how you assess risk from a stress mm -hmm. testing standpoint, where do you take stress testing? And, and, and as you're looking at new properties that you're, that you're looking at purchasing now, or even how you're assessing the, you know, you had mentioned, you know, needing to, um, to do a, a, uh, a pullback on some of, you know, a reduction in the distributions that you're, that you're issuing. How are you assessing those stress tests? Yeah, I mean, the stress tests are pretty much the same regardless of the market. We, you know, there's a few things that we like to do that help. One is we've got six months of working capital reserve that we set aside. Number two is, you know, we're not over leveraged, so that helps. That's we big. Can, Those two are huge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we can withstand a, you know, 80% occupancy um, and still be okay. Problem that we faced, for instance, last quarter, uh, yeah, last quarter, was that we had folks that stopped paying rent because of the end of COVID relief. Mm -hmm. So our delinquency went way up, which means our economic occupancy went way down, combined with interest rates going up. So we got some, you know, some higher costs of borrowing, combined with inflation, where real estate taxes are up, insurance is up, payroll's up, everything else is up too. Right. <laughs> right. So and then it takes 12 months for us to turn an entire property from a leasing standpoint. So, you know, all this happened in the course of maybe three to six months, and now we've got to take 12 months to catch up, which we will. But obviously you feel that short-term pain as a multifamily operator when those things happen. So um, that's kind of where we're at today. But again, the market as a whole is healthy. The fundamentals of the business are strong, but you've got to have the fortitude and the operational capability mm -hmm. really to make it through these kind of uh, scenarios. And, and for those who didn't listen to last week's episode where Robert went over risk, that he, he covered the fact that so much of the risk assessment is in the operator. And obviously, operators who are, who are going much more uh, to the max on leverage, and who are running, you know, a, a thinner, you know, a thinner balance sheet, the, the, those, those operators are, I would say they're in their jeopardy right now. Right. Yeah. Well, they're, 
understandably, they're making capital calls, they're cutting distributions to zero, they're, you know, probably in a situation where six months, they might have to have a short sale to get out of a deal. Yep. Um, you know, all of those scenarios are beginning to play out around us. You're not going to hear about them because, you know, who wants to raise their hand and say, hey, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but they're happening all around us right now. And so, you know, I think uh, one of my not major concerns, but one of my somewhat concerns is that if that spreads to too many properties, then we could see a fairly significant decrease in the overall market. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, there is just a ton of money sitting on the sidelines looking for a home, looking for an opportunity. Right. So I think that's going to prop up a lot of these operators, um, you know, to their benefit, and that's fine. But I do think that'll happen. And, you know, some people have said, well, what if the Fed drops rates tomorrow? Okay. Well, if the Fed drops rates, then most likely the dollar is not necessarily the reserve currency of choice. So we won't have as much foreign investment. But obviously, the valuations of our existing property is going to go back up because the, you know, the, the, the uh, cap rates are going to drop. Yep. Flip side, the interest rates keep going up. Fed fights inflation, shows the world that, hey, dollar's still the reserve currency of the world. Great. Everybody still wants to invest in the U.S. Lots of money sitting there ready to go when there's a distressed opportunity. So I think either way, we're going to come out all right from a commercial property standpoint. Okay. So that, that brings into, um, so I wanted to hit a little bit on how you switch investing between you know, if you're investing in a rising interest rate environment versus mm. a declining interest rate environment. Yep. Yeah, that's, well, I'll just say this, uh, big picture. I'm not a market timer. Um, so I've never tried to sell at the top, buy at the bottom, you know, mm -hmm. nothing like that. Um, I'm not smart enough to do that. Some guys- or smart that, enough not to do it. Eh, maybe, maybe. I, I do think there's guys out there that are, that are, I know there's guys out there that are smarter than I, so they, you know, they can time some of that. Hey, kudos to them. Sure. I don't feel like I'm smart enough to do that. I look at the data and I try to make uh, reasonable decisions based on what I see today with some you know, reasonable expectations of the future. So for me, it's more about being careful when you're in a rising interest rate environment, your ability to adjust is going to be slower than the, typically it's going to be slower than what's happening in the market. So again, going back to the last quarter, expenses go up faster than I can turn the property. It takes 12 months to turn a property. Now, thankfully, we're not in the office space market where sure. it takes five years to turn, right. you know, a lease. So we're, we're better than that. But still, it's 12 months. So in a rising interest rate environment, you have to be prepared from a liquidity standpoint. Now, from an appreciation standpoint, as I mentioned, long-term, property is appreciating. You're not going to feel it in the short run, but it's appreciating. On the flip side, when the, when the interest rates are going down, you're going to be able to capture a lot of that upside. But the danger is that it lulls you into what I would call operational uh, sort of mud <laughs> yeah. where you don't have to perform really well on the operational side. And you're going to make money every single time because you're just, you know, buy it, hold it, flip it, buy it, hold it, flip it. And so you can get a little lazy on the right. operational side. Right. And that's where, you know, we're taking the opportunity in 2023 to really tighten down our operations, really bring on the right people, build out the bench. And it's good. We, we, we should do it anyway but it's kind of nice to have an opportunity where the market's a little bit slower. So. All right. So now let's take a minute. So you have, as you look out at the the landscape of where you're at for 2023, where REM capital is, is looking to invest, you are making a shift into 
mm-hmm. your development instead of value add. Um, yeah. We hit a little bit on why, what, what you're seeing as an opportunity inside inside development right now. And then after that, kind of roll into the property that you are, uh, you know, full, full permission for a, a shameless plug here to right. talk a little, bit, a little bit about St. Pete, just from a standpoint that, you know, you're not trying to con anyone into the, into this, but I want I want people to understand, you know, what REM does and and why you think that this, this opportunity in St. Pete is unique. Sure. Yeah, and I, and I do think there's an absolute uh, business case for what we're doing. Um, you know, we had several deals under contract last year. First half of the year, we put them under contract. We closed them all at the end of the year. Renegotiated most of them three, four times. You know, got a nice discount as their interest rates went up. We decided to stick with those deals. In part because, you know, we put them under contract and we tend to be uh, people of our word. So, hey, we're buying your property, we're buying your property. But we got a discount, felt like it was a good deal. That being said, we have not put any value-add deals under contract since about mid of last year. So basically, Fed started raising rates and we said, hey, hang on, you know, how does this look from a today standpoint? So again, timing the market, I probably would have shut it off at the beginning of last year but I'm not a market timer. So I'm looking at deals in January, February. I'm thinking, hey, you know, maybe rates go up a little bit. Deal's still fine. We'll close it. And then rates start going up. You go back to seller, you renegotiate. Life was on. And I do think it was worth closing it because we'll spend an extra million dollars on interest, but we got a five to $7 million discount on the valuation. So, sure. you know, I'll take a, a 5X multiple on my money all day long. Absolutely. <laughs> As will your so, investors. Exactly, exactly. So I think, Kind of switching gears, though, from a development standpoint, so development has a longer pipeline. So you buy a piece of property and you're two to three years out before that product hits the market. So yep. in the meantime, you're playing a little bit more market timing because you don't know what's going to happen in two to three years. So for me, it was an opportunity for us to, uh, we came across some land, you know, several pieces of land, two of these in St. Petersburg that we just felt were a good deal, great opportunity. And typically what happens in an economic downturn is that new construction starts tank. People get scared, don't want to do development. And so new construction starts really start to tank. What that means is that two years later, a year to two years later, there's not very many new starts. So from an inventory absorption standpoint, you're in pretty good shape. Right. Now people would argue, well, yeah, but by then the economy's weak. And so, you know, the demand isn't as high. That's true. You're, you're definitely taking a risk. But at the same time, Two to three years later, the economy comes back and there's minimal inventory. Watch out. Now you really have a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if you can underwrite a deal conservatively in, you know, with current metrics, do a little stress testing and it works, you're basically giving yourself huge upside potential with a two-year window. And I love that opportunity right now because it gives us the ability to put our foot in the ground, get some great product out of the, out of the dirt. And in two years, we're going to be ready to lease it up. So that kind of leads to where we're at with St. Pete. Great market, core market, huge growth. Hasn't seen any rent decreases since you know the beginning of the interest rate increase. Valuations continue to go up. Incomes, population, everything continues to go up. Great yeah. market. Right. Would want to be there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I feel like we have a little bit of an opportunity because not as many people are in the market vying for these new development sites. And so look at us, little REM, boom, we're going to have 220 units coming out of the ground in downtown CP Florida. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm excited. absolutely. But that's kind of the thought process there. It's just, it's an opportunity to get a two-year window 
with a great upside potential on a core A plus location in a great market, I think it's well worth the investment opportunity. So um, maybe explain to investors a little bit of why you chose to go with you know studio apartments there and, and what, mm. what your thought is behind that. Yep. Yeah, we've had a lot of questions about the unit mix because we went with the smaller unit sizes. And uh, I would say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily do this in every single market. Um, I live here in the Tampa Bay area, so I know this market really well. So if you're going to make a bet on your market, you better know your market really well. Let me just say that. Sure. That's a great point. <laughs> uh, you know, again, don't, don't do this at home type of thing. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm guaranteed to win. But I'm making a little bit of a bet because I believe, based on the statistics and from the knowledge that I have of this market, there are a lot of people who would love to be in downtown St. Petersburg but cannot afford a three to $4,000 per month rent. They're okay with the smaller unit. They don't mind that. Uh, you know, Some of them are working from home, some are not. But their life, their living is not in their apartment. Their okay, living yeah. is downtown St. Pete. It's beautiful. It's sunny. It's gorgeous. It's great community. It's restaurants, it's art, it's music. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. You don't want to be in your apartment anyway. So if you can get into the location for, you know, 50 to 60% less than what you could otherwise, I think we're going to provide a very unique value proposition to those residents. And that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. So that's really the crux of why we did that. Um, the other side of it is that it's lower risk, I think. So building units at, you know, let's call it $500,000 per unit, just basis-wise, it's more It's more risk. Um, we've got a neighbor going up catty corner to us, 200 units, $94 million to put that property in the ground. We're doing 220 units for, call it $50 million. So almost double the price per unit. So again, you know, your basis is no guaranteed of, of success. Right. I'm not saying that, but it certainly reduces that risk over the long run. Absolutely. So those are kind of our two two uh, reasons, I guess, for why we chose that unit. You know, okay. Mix. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Um, last question there. If you had to assess, so obviously Florida got hit hard in 08. Hmm. How, how is Florida positioned now? And I'm not saying that we're going to have some some major real estate crash here now, but um, there's certainly, you know, we're on shaky ground and it just depends on, on where yeah. the Fed goes. And I think the Fed is... You alluded to this a little bit, but they're in a bit of a no-win situation um, as they stand. So as they try to choose the lesser of two evils or the lesser of five evils, it might be a better way to look at it. Um, If someone is trying to assess real estate, whether this is an investment in St. Pete or, you know, a a condo in in downtown Miami, um, how how is Florida positioned today compared to 08? Sure. I think there's a couple of very important factors that have changed since 2008. Number one, the amount of leveraged empty properties is drastically less than what it was in 2008. Okay. So got a lot of properties that are owned in cash, that even investment properties owned in cash, Blackstone being one of the largest investors. Yeah. So you're not in a situation where people have no money in these houses. That's not the current scenario. And that changes a lot of things. The other interesting scenario, as you know, is that because interest rates have risen, people are not able to sell their homes. They're kind of stuck. 
Right. And, you know, we're back in, in 2007, 2008, people had no, no equity. They were way upside down. They're not upside down. Housing prices have, you know, stabilized, but they still got equity. There's no reason for people to move out. There's no reason for them to throw the keys and say, screw it, I'm out. So they're sitting tight. And that helps the market like this. It helps stabilize things. So I don't think that we're going to see the same scenario for those two reasons. Um, I also believe that because of 2008, banks were required to be a little bit more uh, careful with their lending. And I think that's helped the overall market in general. Now, you know, obviously we have this, the situations like uh, Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, but you really have to dig into the reasons for why those particular bank failures happened. And it was related to bad investment decisions, not because they were over leveraged from a real estate standpoint. And that's, you know, a few weeks ago, I did a CEO blog on that because I really wanted people to understand, guys, listen, you can invest in treasuries, which Silicon Valley did. They invested in treasuries. Hey, we don't want to risk this. We're just going to put it in treasuries, get our two, three, four percent, whatever it is. It sounds really smart. But as interest rates go up, the value of those bonds go down. And man, did the value of those bonds go down. Ouch. Right. right. So, you know, what are you left with? Well, you made 4% and you lost 30. Uh, last time I checked, 30 minus 4, 4 minus 30, I'm upside down 26. That's not good. That's enough to so, collapse the bank. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, I think it's important to always think these things through from a practical standpoint and not just soundbite standpoint. Right. You know. <laughs> so, so what would you say... What would you say to someone, and, and maybe we'll keep this one short here. What would you say to someone who's who's trying to assess, you know, the, um, they're trying to assess the time to invest, and, and when do they do they continue sitting on the sidelines in cash or in some ultra, you know, short term bond portfolio, or do they do they look at being a little bit more opp- opportunistic inside of real estate now? Sure. Yeah. Well, my answer is pretty much the same regardless of the market. Honestly, uh, and again, people could disagree with me and say, "Ah, oh, that's ridiculous." It's basically the same thing. I told people the same thing five years ago. I said, "Listen, you got some money to invest. Get it invested. Save a little on the sidelines. Diversify your investments, but get it invested. If you invest with a good operator in a good asset class over the long run, you're going to do just fine." And if you look at Warren Buffett, basically, that's his model. Yeah. And the guy's done all right. <laughs> he, he has absolutely done all right. All right, Robert, how do how do investors uh, find you? How do they get a hold of your CEO blog to to start consuming your content, which is what I would recommend anyone does to, to, to yeah. get a more educational um, approach to this, to understand a little bit more about REM, especially about Robert and your thought process behind investing. So how do, how do investors find you to invest or to um, or even just to start consuming your content? Yeah. Well, I always uh, say go to the front door, rmcapital.com. We've got a a link on there to get on our email list and the contact form. You can always reach out to me, but that's, uh, that's the best way. And like you mentioned too, we got a YouTube channel, LinkedIn, you know, all the, all the usual stuff. So, okay. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's always, uh, I I learn a ton every time I talk to you. So I I appreciate it. I hope the listeners um, got a lot out of these these last two episodes as well. So Robert, thank you very much for your time. Um, thank thanks you. for joining us here. And for the listeners, uh, if next next week, we are going to be meeting with Cal Rickner, and we're going to be working on stewardship and how to settle the issue of ownership. So 
Um, hope you'll join us again next week. Robert, thank you very much. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Well,